Welcome back to the When I Grow Up podcast. I've had a bit of a break from the podcast and I guess you can call this the return or series two, but it's still the same podcast in which each episode I interview a guest about the many threads that have come together to make their life and career so far. I don't know about you, but I always find it very reassuring to hear about the twists and turns in other people's paths. Uh, I've definitely come to learn that no journey is linear and we really are all still figuring it out as we go along. I know I definitely am. My guest this episode is New York Times CEO Mark Thompson. Born in London, he grew up in Welland Garden City, Hertfordshire. After graduating from Oxford University with a first class honours in English, he joined the BBC as a trainee, quickly working his way up through the ranks, launching shows such as Watchdog and Breakfast Time, before various stints as editor on flagship news shows such as Newsnight, The Nine O'Clock News and Panorama. He became controller of BBC Two and was then appointed director of television, before leaving the BBC in 2002 to become CEO of Channel Four. In 2004, he returned to take up the role of director general at the BBC, during which time he reshaped the organisation to meet the challenges of the digital age, with the launch of services such as BBC iPlayer. On November 12, 2012, he crossed the pond to become president and CEO of the New York Times. Mark has been instrumental in accelerating the pace of the Times' digital transformation. Under his leadership, the Times has become the first news organisation in the world to pass the one million digital-only subscription mark. Having served at the helm of world-class media companies during the course of a career spanning over four decades, I was absolutely fascinated to hear more about what purpose and fulfillment means to Mark and really what motivates him. We talked all about how he navigated the BBC in his early career and how he eventually came to lead an organisation in which he started as a trainee. We also touched on what it was like moving to New York, the challenges he faces as a CEO of the New York Times and also his future ambitions. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and if you do I would really appreciate it if you could rate or review. It really offers a welcome boost and helps other people find it as well. So thank you for that and without further ado here is the episode. Welcome, Mark Thompson, to the When I Grow Up podcast. I want to begin with the question that I always ask guests, which is, I want to know a bit about a younger Mark. Uh, what was he like? And did he have any idea about what the future held and what he wanted to be when he grew up? Not much, really. I mean, there's no question that when I was at school, I, I, I was very interested in, in kind of stories. I, I, I did a lot of drama. I wrote um, uh, uh, a series of plays, went on at, at university to go on writing plays. And also did quite a lot of journalism. But I had no idea about a career. And actually, I, 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 at university, I kind of assumed, um, I think a lot of people around me kind of assumed I'd probably stay at university. I'd probably kind of, you know, go on doing research and sort of disappear into the academic woodwork. And all, all my friends were, were applying to the BBC. And I hadn't really thought about that. Uh, but I thought, you know, how, how, how difficult would it be? And I, I dashed off a application for I'd, I'd left it too late to to put it in the post so I actually physically went down to London and popped it in a letterbox in Portland <laughs> Place um but very much just only because I mean a kind of like a like a sort of stampede psychology it's like you know they're all doing it I yeah. better do it as well and it was really only after I'd applied I, I discovered how difficult they were to get um but I, I got one did you get onto the production trainee scheme? It was yeah. It was we were called rats, research assistant trainees, and it was in BBC Television. And you used to, you know, you got a uh, an eighteen month contract, and you'd spend three months going around different programs. And you know, I, I told them I wanted to go into current affairs. I was very interested in politics, and they, of course, sent me to religion. Um, but eventually, I got to current affairs, and I it kind of I spent a, about a month 
six weeks just not clicking and not really understanding it and scratching my head and not getting anything on the air. This was on Nationwide, a, a daily current affairs show. Uh, and then one day it kind of clicked. Uh, and the next day I got two pieces on the air and the next day I got another piece on the air. And within two or three weeks I was doing the biggest item. I was doing the big political items. And What can you attribute to that click? Well, I've always had this sense that Often this is almost like attunement. If you can, in, in a job, or, or if you can kind of almost like hear the tune, you, you can sort of understand how the thing works and just kind of go with that. It's amazing how quickly things, things can kind of click and you can get on. And often you can't. I mean, it's like, it's, it's a, it's like a luck thing that, that whether, you know, your ear is, is going to catch the, the kind of tune and... and in a way, I almost from that moment, there's two or three moments in my career which just, there's, I remember the very clearly a day when I, 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 I sort of got it and understood what they wanted and, and, and suddenly thought, actually, you know, I, I thought literally, I think I, I probably made a mistake, this isn't going to work. Um, and then this day happened and I thought, well, actually, it probably is going to work. And in fact, it's kind of natural. I can do it without thinking about it yeah really. it's, is that and kind of what you would describe it felt like at the time like completely it no completely seamless. and it's just like a something like a little um uh, my friend john ware who's um one of the great investigative journalists work, i worked with him for many years in panorama used with uh, investigations talk about the silent click the moment when the story just comes together mm-hmm. and suddenly it makes sense and you've got it and the evidence is there and you can tell the story. And I, it, it was like a moment of a silent click where I, you, you could just, just I, I just felt I could do it. And did that confirm to you that you, after what may have felt like not a conscious decision, or well, it was a conscious decision, well, but to point, go into I BBC? To I've been watching Current Affairs for years. I, I hadn't really thought about this almost until this moment, but actually I'd followed Watergate obsessively um, uh, when I was a kid of, 12, 13, 14, the BBC um, played all the, the Senate hearings in the early hours of the morning. I was staying up at 13 or 14 to, 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 to watch these hearings. I'd, 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 be, I'd been reading newspapers since I was 10 or 11. Um, and I was really interested in journalism. I'd done actually a surprising amount of journalism of different kinds. And I found it incredibly exciting. And actually, in some ways for me, what I'd always really thought I'd do is be, be a writer of fiction. Uh, plays or, or, or novels. So, you studied English? I studied English and I certainly had a great interest in creative writing. I've always had a great interest and I did. I'm, I'm currently writing a novel for what it's worth. It's, a, it's taken me a while. I've had a rather long kind of broadcast and, and journalism career between between then and now, but I, I've never quite, I've never lost that dream. It's, it's definitely That's a so dream. It's nice to hear that It's you a dream postponed. Well, I mean, who the hell knows? But because it, it turns out to be quite difficult. <laughs> <laughs> you started thinking, how hard could it be? And to which the answer is really, really quite hard. But so I'd assume that. So this, but then when I started doing journalism, actually, it's something I suddenly realized that actually I'd always been very interested in and found it very exciting. And, and the glamour of, of TV in particular, I mean, you can feel you go wander, wander around the New York Times printing plant or go down to the newsroom on a big day and you can feel it here as well but particularly the 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 kind of um excitement of walking into a tv studio when there's a gigantic store or being on the ground as a story's happening out there in the, in the field and you get closer and closer to the moment of transmission and the red light goes on and suddenly there are millions of people with you and you're doing this thing and reaching out to, to to millions of people. That's a kind of unique buzz to me. And I, I never lost it as director general. I mean, you know, the, of the organization years later. 
going into an, into a into a live TV studio was still an incredible it's incredible a, excitement. It's this kind of adrenaline rush. Like I remember when I worked on Strictly Come Dancing, just the countdown, the moment, and even being in the new broadcasting house, that feeling that things are being broadcast, and it's just an energy there that uh, completely is infectious. And, and I always think that it's almost like the last. It's probably the last bit of conventional television that will go live mass broadcasting. And I think Strictly is a good example of one of the ways which we fairly deliberately reinvented it. We, 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 we made a show which you kind of had to be there sitting at home live to watch it. Yeah, it's like a national moment. And like the great sporting moments or the great, the great, the kind of state occasions and the great, you know, kind of anniversaries and all of that. TV was made for that. I mean, right from the first days of TV, they, they realized that that was going to be incredibly important and exciting and it still is you mentioned this click and you were then following a trajectory at the bbc and at this point did you start planning what this career was going to look like (laughs) or did you did you just follow your nose and think well this feels good i'm enjoying this absolutely not and of course you, you, you can imagine the way it works is everyone around you firstly misremembers the past they will say oh well it was completely obvious you know from the first day you walked in you know and it's that's absolute nonsense i mean that's just i think the that's the, the you know the 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 eye and the mind playing i heard someone say that they saw you as a trainee and someone said to you he's going to be director general one day is that one of those stories i i, I don't i don't remember that and i think it's i i just think that's absurd and, and the other thing is people assume there must have been some cunning master plan in particular people are very a very particular idea that you know these organizations are very political you must be a kind of Machiavellian. You, there must be a sort of, you know, cunning sort of complex plan of treachery and alliances and all the rest of it. And I just want to say from the middle of it, it's just not felt like that at all. I mean, there's no question that I was, I had this thing that superficially I looked like, particularly in the early part of my career, I was always described as a, as a safe pair of hands. It's it sort of, oh, well, you know, a bit traditional, um, but very solid, you know, uh, rather unadventurous, but, you know, Which, when w- you look at the rest of your up. career, well, it not, couldn't possibly I'm describe not, you. I'm not, I'm not a safe pair of hands in the slightest. <laughs> uh, 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 um, I've always been quite... Um, I, I'm not, I mean, I, I did one thing. I was controller of BBC Two, and I, I took over from... Uh, Michael Jackson had been the controller before me, and Michael had done a really excellent job, I thought, with BBC Two, and it was in great form. And I thought, I, I came in, this would, would have been in the um, the middle 90s, I came in to be uh, controller of BBC Two, and I thought, actually, what we need is more of the same. We just need to, you know, more great shows, more more originality, more talent, new talent, and the rest of it. But essentially, no need for a fundamental um, change in, in strategy, no need to shake things up, just let's just go on having fun and making continuing with a wonderful TV channel. I did that for about two and a half years until I, I was given another job. And that's the only two and a half years in 40 years where I felt we haven't had the need to do something quite drastic. Because the thing about my career is it's been one where the industry has just been going through this astonishing revolution. And the other thing about me, which I think is unusual, is most people very sensibly hate disruption are unsettled by change and are very kind of perplexed when you've got to make difficult decisions and I've always quite enjoyed all those things I've actually got something out of it in it so I think my appetite for fairly scary periods of change is is unusual possibly slightly mad actually I mean it's a it's a very odd it's partly a bit like yeah. the journalistic impulse when you hear some kind of terrible noise 
to run towards it rather than yeah, against yeah. it. There's a bit of that, but I think almost like in in terms of of leadership, I've also been quite attracted to to kind of tough situations. So when you got into the leadership positions, did you find enjoyment in the same way that you did when you were, say, you were an editor at 30, were you not? Yes, yeah, the, the, the 9 o'clock news, I was the editor of 9 o'clock news, which was the main news in those days in the, in the UK at, at 30. And by, by my late 30s, I was a controller of, of BBC Two. Yeah, I, I loved being a controller. I always missed, and to this day, missed that business of the very big stories of actually being there. I was, you know, Chenaman Square or South Africa during the uh, the uh, state of emergency, the last days of apartheid, or you know, covering the great kind of summits, the Reagan and Gorbachev and all that stuff, or the uh, Perestroika and, and Gorbachev in Russia. So I, I did, and you know, wars in Africa and all the rest of it. I, that, that stuff I, I've always missed. That it was just incredible incredible privilege just to kind of be there and to meet people in the middle of those big stories but no i i loved i loved the business of shaping a, a tv network and uh this palette you in those days the controller commissioned everything so this palette of drama and comedy and entertainment and documentary and just trying to work out through a through an evening or through a week or through a season how to how to make it all sing so i love that yeah and when you were traversing all these different roles how did you know when it was time to move on or how did you know that this was a next good my, move my, for you? So after a bit, and this is kind of a weird thing about media careers, um, certainly in my time and probably I think in the future, is it's almost like it's like there's a kind of vacuum effect that what happens is essentially because of this level of disruption, constantly as well the structure above you and around you is opening up. Uh, somebody will get fired. Somebody will get promoted. Somebody will go off to Hollywood or go off and get another big job somewhere else. And a gap emerges. And the weird thing, this is a very frustrating thing to say to anyone un- under the age of 30, but there comes a point where, weirdly, it's like the competition thins out. Trying to become a graduate trainee at the BBC was like the national lottery. But So I, I got one of those. That's by far the hardest job to get I've ever had. Becoming director general of the BBC is a lot easier than becoming a graduate trainee because there's like a tiny number of candidates. In a funny way, I always think these top jobs, I always think about, you know, if you're looking for someone like me, I'm probably quite quite a good candidate. If you're in the room, you, you've got a very good chance of getting the job because they, they, they're looking for someone like you. And they, it's very clear from God knows the internet and everything else, what you've done and all the rest of it, your past crimes. And it's that everyone knows who you are. And if they're interested, then then actually, you know, there aren't many people like you. So suddenly you find that you're when you're competing, you're competing against one or two people rather than kind of literally 500. Weirdly, your chances, if you want to, are, are, are quite good. And I have to say at the BBC, it's almost like it was more than that. There was a period where lots of changes were happening. They needed people to fill jobs. And immense pressure was put on me to take jobs which I didn't really want. And I'd, I'd said no to two or three. I, I was really desperate to stay at, at, at BBC Two. I needed two and a half years there. Uh, but in the end, I, I got persuaded to go off and run the so-called Nations and Regions, uh, which was a much more managerial job. I was dead against it, but the, my, my boss, um, John Burt, who was then Director General, thought it would be good for me, and I'd get lots of experience of large-scale management and, and some tough stuff, you know, budgets and people and unions and all the rest of it, and I, I still see John from time to time. He was right. I was actually quite angry about the thing, but, and, and ended up sort of rather grumpily 
um, saying, well, I suppose I'd better do it because I'd said no to two or three other big things already. And actually, again, in a different way, I loved it. I actually liked that more pure kind of management thing, learned a lot about the United Kingdom, which actually even today feels like it's relevant. I think I sort of feel I've, I've got some inkling as a kind of, kind of, if you like, a member of the I'm half Irish, but essentially the English elite, London elite. I, I but I, I went to boarding school in the north of England, and um, have plenty of relatives in Ireland, and I, I felt I did feel something about the rest of the country, which ultimately would lead to things like the um, the big expansion in Manchester and all the rest of it. How did the question come to you about being director general? Was it another one? Uh, was it? A well, I got to Channel Four. I mean, I. I, I Again, I mean, you know, the people, you know, often friendly people having tough conversations with me about my future, so stuff I didn't want to hear. I was um, uh, Greg Dyke, maybe director of television um, in about 2000. But then the chairman of the BBC, Christopher Bland, said, got me up to his office and he said, look, nobody else will tell you this, Mark, but you should leave. You know, if you want to be director general, you ought to you ought to get some experience outside the BBC. You get some commercial experience, show them that you can you can really thrive outside the BBC. So you know, so he said, if they heard me saying this, they'd be very angry. They think you should stay forever. Actually, you should go. And not long after that, I did indeed go off to Channel Four, and again loved Channel Four, wanted to stay there. But Greg Dyke was fired as uh, director general of the BBC because of the whole. Gilligan, Kelly, Hutton scandals as they were now in sort of 2003, 2004. And, and um, at that point, they basically phoned up. I mean, actually, I, uh, it was a, f- a funny day. There was a day when Greg was fired. I happened to be going to uh, the BBC in White City to go and talk to what had been the old BBC presentation department about whether the BBC could bid for the transmission of all of Channel 4's networks. And, and my phone goes and it's, it's Greg Dyke. And he says, right, I'm off then. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm resigning. Uh, I'm just about to do a press conference. You've got to come back, Mark. I'm sorry. I know you, you won't want to, but I'm afraid it's got to be you. And he yeah. put the phone down. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I get out of the car. I'm being driven uh, out of the car into into White City One, and um, and I'm taken towards the person I'm, I'm going to be seeing. And all of the staff are crowded around TV screens watching Greg, who's now outside television centre doing some kind of slightly crazy press conference with about five TV crews. And uh, somebody looked round and saw me and said, well, it didn't take you long. (laughs) (laughs) So when you got that phone call, did you have an immediate reaction? Yeah, which was I didn't want to do it. And I spent, there was a quite a protracted process, at least it felt like it. it was probably about two months of... My trying to resist it. I felt, I felt I should stay at Channel 4. Again, I'd only been there a couple of years. Um, I loved it. I thought it was a lot to do. Lots of challenges, strategic challenges. Arguably, Channel 4 still faces them. Um, and I was just getting my feet under the table and just getting ready for it. And I got worn down again, really, I mean, I want to say. And, and worn down with a kind of, you know... Um, I mean, there were some other strong candidates, and notably my very good friend Mark Byford. But I, I ended up sort of you know your country needs you moment really where i've just felt that in the end it's 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 one of the most important cultural institutions in the world it's by far the biggest and most important thing happening in media in the uk in all seriousness if they really do need you and the the bbc was then as it often is in complete meltdown you better 
step up. <laughs> step up yeah. sort of thing. And it, 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 everyone always, again, always assumes it was kind of brilliant Machiavellian moves. And it, it's complete nonsense. I mean, absolutely. I was torn about it. My family didn't want me to do it. I knew exactly what it was going to be like. I'd seen, I'd seen John Burt doing it close up. I'd seen Greg. I had a very, very good sense of what was likely to unfold, as indeed it did. Um, and um, I thought, you know, in the end, I'd better do it. So, How did it feel actually stepping into the role? Like, do, do you kind of, did you have a plan? or? Well, I'm the kind of person, look, I, I, I spin into these things and that, that, the business of how you, because I've now done it three times, Channel 4, the BBC and, and the New York Times as, as, as an incoming TV executive. I've got a kind of way of, 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 of rolling in and sort of listening a lot and uh, beginning to make decisions so people get some idea of what you, you, what you stand for, but trying actually not to prejudge stuff too much. So sort of developing the plan yeah. and acting and trying to understand and, and sort of to, to embed oneself in the culture all at the same time. And that, 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 that seems to work okay in a sense. I'm, I, I've turned out certainly in the, in the places I've worked to be, I'm able to be quite effective quite quickly. Essentially, I think I think I talk all the time. I, my Irish genes mean I'm, I'm going to endlessly, endlessly whittering away. whittering away. Exactly, that's right. So that's that. But in fact, I'm I'm a better listener than I sound. <laughs> it was on August the 14th that you were named the next yeah. CEO of the New York Times, and you officially took the position on November the 12th. Yeah. Again, like I'm curious to know how did this opportunity come about? Was it again another knock on the door? Yes, uh, and again, I mean, and this is this is a bit of a pattern for me. Basically, my absolute initial in- instinctive reaction was to say, "I no," um, and and you know, for fairly obvious reasons, which is, um, uh, the New York Times is a is a is a is a, is a newspaper and it's a news organisation, but not with a broadcasting. I mean, we're just developing our first TV show launches at the beginning of June, um, first TV show of, of of the of the last fifteen years at least. But at that point, there was really no, there was no podcasting. There was no there was a little bit of video, but not much. Um, it's another country. Um, I'd never worked for a for profit organisation. Somebody said to me when I when I arrived at the Times, "You're moving from one not for profit to another." But <laughs> that was a bit harsh. The New York Times even then was making a profit, but but and we make a good profit today. But but so initially, I thought no, and then I, I actually knew people at the Times, and I rang. Um, a couple of people inside the Times and some other good friends in New York and said, well, what do you think? And they, with one exception, they all advised me not to do it. Um, they said it's kind of hopeless. Uh, they're incredibly clever people, but they've lost their way. Change is very hard in that organisation. And American newspapers are doomed anyway, so... Cut your losses now don't, and don't. Don't, don't, <laughs> yeah. don't do it. And, of course, it, my personality, that's always quite... You know, I think, oh, well, it's like when I, a child's told not well, to do something, exactly. they can't do it. No, I, I think that's. A, I think that's a very. I got beaten at school con- consistently for uh, cheeky remarks, and uh, you know, I, I I was that very odd mixture of being really an academically very able kid, but who nonetheless kind of got into trouble a lot for answering back and for you know, um, and for for sort of being difficult really, and. And, and I quite often, somebody tells me not to do something, I instinctively think, well, perhaps I'll give it a go then. So that then uh, <laughs> opened up the, the the thought process of actually maybe yeah, I will, yeah, I will take and, it. And, and the thing is, and it's fairly obvious from 
you know, it's another one of the world's great brands. I mean, what's the greatest news organization in the world? Well, I've taken the precaution of working and, and then ultimately leading the BBC and, and being the chief executive of the New York Times. So I'm kind of hedging my bets there. I mean, any list would have those two in the top three Thank or four. And, and I thought, so. I thought, my God, what a brand and what, what potential if we can just get the thing moving. Yeah. And, and the other big thing, really big thing, and this is, I think, I want to say, is, I think is unique, really, in my experience to the New York Times, and is different, and I think it may partly be a cultural difference in America and the UK. I felt that the board of the company, the the family who've got a controlling interest in the company, the Oxalsberger family, and many of the people I met genuinely were hungry for change. You don't really quite get that in British institutions to the same extent that here, that sense of possibility and why don't we try it, why don't we have a go, is very strong in America. That's exactly what I tell people. It's just some sense of possibility that it's sometimes quite hard to explain. But I feel that everywhere I turn. And, and I, I thought that incredibly exciting. And yeah. I thought, actually, you know, everyone's kind of, almost everyone, one, one guy, a man called John Eastman, said to me, you know, actually this might be the right moment this is very interesting i was also i've been offered a, um, a very interesting opportunity um which would be more kind of west coast hollywood kind of london and hollywood uh and potentially actually much more lucrative but but and i was very ex- instant excited than that but this this one this this one i just thought is this really interesting and again that thing which is it matters you know that, that this is 2012 it's long before uncle donald arrived in the in the white house but you know the sense that actually the, the future of journalism really matters. And if you can prove something out at the New York Times, maybe it'll help, you know, put some backbone into into other news organisations and maybe, you know, you can in, instill some hope into an entire industry which is, you know, in danger of, of, of losing hope and of, of, of just sort of despairing. So I thought, I thought super high risk. And you always have that feeling, but particularly I knew the BBC and I had a pretty good idea what Channel 4 was going to be like. But... Walking in as a foreigner into the New York Times for the first day of actual work, you do in your mind think, well, this, is, this could be interesting. Uh, how will they react? Will they kind of reject me? Will they just think, what does this guy know? Greg Dyke, years and years ago, 18 years ago anyway, gave me the advice, don't let anyone patronize you about commercial acumen or commercial knowledge. He says it's all common sense. It's, it's confidence and common sense. That feels right to me. That there's, there's nothing about... Uh, the stuff I've had to do as a chief executive of a public company, which is not basically commonsensical, and which we haven't been able to—I haven't been able to kind of manage pretty, pretty easily and quickly. The fundamentals go back to: Can you find an audience? Can you engage them? Can you delight them? Are you clear about what you stand for? Do you protect and nurture your brand? Are you thinking intelligently about distribution channels and platforms, and and the possibilities of 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 the new devices and new ways of consuming media and it's like that's kind of true of every media company in the world now and it's it, it, to me that, that 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 puzzle the puzzles of how you think about that how you start getting forward momentum and try and get into a kind of virtuous circle of doing cool new things which people like and which which help redefine your narrative and and also hopefully bring in some revenue and then that gives you the confidence to do something else new that that that's that sort of cycle positive cycle is what we've tried to do here 
So when you came in, you could identify the challenges, would you say, pretty quickly yeah. based on your past well, I mean, experiences? Well, the basic challenges are very straightforward, which was that the digital business was largely stalled and the print business was falling like a stone. So, you know, I and if you drew the kind of lines from the, the PowerPoint graphs into the future, it all looked pretty gruesome. So, yeah, like a really simple problem, which is, in the end, this is not going to be a viable business unless we do something drastic. And when you looked at the task at hand, you said that you spend time getting a lay of the land and really asking questions and understanding. How else did you start enacting you know, what would become the strategy and devising the strategy? And and were you ever faced with a kind of, this is not possible? Sure. No, I mean, the, 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 you definitely have, I mean, I think on all these things, you have you have bad days, as it were, where, um, um, and you just, I think you just have to keep calm. It's like, my experience often is when it looks impossible, just frankly, kind of give it a week, you know, give it a month, you know, don't, don't, don't try and, force things i mean the other thing i've i've ended up thinking is that the trick the whole time is to think of your task as unlocking something rather than forcing something you try to force people to change particularly media people journalists and and other very creative people trying to kind of force them or kind of send them an email sort of telling them to change is completely not just ineffective but counterproductive. The trick is to try and find where the energy for change is and then kind of unlock it and give it permission and then stand back and let them do it. I mean, the ideal is they're pounding down your door talking about why you need to move faster, why you need to change. And the trick is almost like to go around sort of lighting little fires and then sort of waiting to see what happens and 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 i i i thought they were great and i think the other big thing is there was a in those days there was a very very strong sense that the news the newsroom which is separately run in this company uh it doesn't report to me it reports separately essentially to a publisher who's always a member of the oxalsberger family that the newsroom was going to be an enormous obstacle um and would would fight tooth and nail um to preserve preserve its sort of separate autonomy and all the rest of it and and really didn't want anything to do with the 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 kind of digital future and i i just always felt they were too smart too creative too risk-taking in their own way for that to be true and it, it, they've been great and so i think the really big thing is that and i think although it's a, it's it's unique i'm the first chief executive of the new york times to be to be myself a journalist I'm the first time they've ever had a journalist doing this role and I think initially there was a real sense of that doesn't seem quite right isn't that going to be difficult isn't he going isn't he going to think he should be running the newsroom as well sort of yeah I'm very very happy to let others I haven't had a single moment a single pang about not having my hands on those controls because as a director general often big editorial decisions will come your way I've much of my life as an editor-in-chief and as a working working editor and journalist so no no I I know all that stuff but actually the guys here are very good these are are some of the best people journalists in the world and best editors in the world you know I was a pretty good editor I'm not saying I could do a better job than any of those guys. Indeed, probably couldn't do as good a job. I've got something I've developed around how you think about 
the future of media and, and how you think about strategic change, which is, un, you know, it's unusual. I've had more experience than most people. I've had it, you know, particularly at the BBC on a kind of a, a, at the level of a global organization. So that's something they didn't have here. Well, he didn't have anything like the um, strength I could I could offer it, and the, the highest and best use of me is to is to apply that mm. to help the organisation rather than you know to be endlessly ringing up the editors saying you know have you thought about okay you know, I'll, I'll send a note saying <laughs> as a humble reader yeah. I, I think X or think Y but 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 uh, Dean Bacay, my friend and colleague the editor is more than capable of. Uh, of sitting on the bridge of that ship and uh, making sure everything's the way it should be. Yeah, and you said that the best way to get people on side and behind a strategy that everyone agrees on and it feels like an energy yeah, that everyone's or at least, behind. Uh, or at least a very good working yeah. majority. I mean, how, I, how I, did you, what was it that you got uh, them on board? I don't know, really. I mean, I, I, I think my basic kind of way of working is try and get lots of things going at the same time without necessarily initially picking winners. And so you, there's lots and lots of ways in which you're sort of trying to interact and trying to raise questions or get little teams together. I've always found that there's a basic, and I learned this late 80s, 90s at the BBC, teams of very lively people, kind of late 20s through late 30s. I don't just mean, I mean, it can involve people of other ages, but if you're like an epicenter of the people who are in, who are already somewhat established but are, who are themselves personally ambitious hungry for for new challenges quite critical of the way things are quite frustrated at the slowness with which things are changing and who also frankly often feel slightly trapped in a kind of with layers above them which looks as if they're never going to change that kind of spirit getting those people to themselves come up with plans for the future and ideas for the future can be very fruitful and is that what you yes, found? Yes, we did. did. Well, and actually, what we what what happened here was a group of exactly such people from the newsroom, who fascinatingly, um, and this was the editor Jill Abramson, the then editor's idea, were essentially led by or chaired by Arthur Gregg Salzberger, who at this point was probably around thirty years old, but a key member of the Salzberger family. He's now the publisher of the New York Times. He's 37 now, I think, 38, and he's now the publisher. But Arthur was working on the Metro desk, I think, as a journalist. He chaired this group, and he, he, he by, this is, I arrived at the end, as you said, the end of 2012. By 2014, we had this this thing called the uh, the Innovation Report, which Arthur wrote as a, this group came up with this, essentially, critique of how far the Times was behind where it should be in its digital story, and it was a manifesto for for radical change and and radical improvements and acceleration. Eventually, the innovation was report was was leaked, and it's been downloaded millions of times. I mean, it was a it was a complete event, and itself because it came out of the newsroom was a really key success factor in terms of getting the entire organisation to, to wake up and say, actually, we're, we're on the move now. We're gonna we're gonna do something differently now. And, and how would you think your leadership style or your own professional trajectory has been influenced by the expectations of all these people that are kind of essentially reporting into you? Like most people, I guess, when I started in work, I kind of assumed that leadership was going to be a bit like a kind of traditional idea of a general, that you'd sort of have a strategy and then you'd find, pe- you'd find people to implement your strategy. You'd sort of, and you'd pass orders down the line and people would carry out the orders and then... I've ended up thinking it, it's not like that at all, really. It's um, 
it's much more about having the right people in the room. I mean, I think the biggest thing is actually the selection of the, of the people. And I think the biggest mistake leaders make, or one of the biggest mistakes, is to kind of slightly duck the question of have you really got the right people in the room? It's very easy to, to be soft on yourself and them. And if you want radical change, you need radical change agents. You just have to be pitilessly honest with yourself about that. You need radical change agents. It, it, it doesn't happen without dynamos of change. So I think you need that. And once you've got that, the next challenge is how the, how the hell do you get them to work with each other? Because often the spirit of radical change is quite independent. It's quite sort of only I can do this sort of thing. Or my team, me and my team will do it. Leave it to us. Whereas all of the puzzles we face are like interdisciplinary. They're all a mixture of journalism and product and engineering and marketing. And and so you've got the business of how do you forge a group of really powerful change agents then into, into a working team. Once those two things are beginning to gel, you can step back quite a lot, I think. And it's, I mean, I do sometimes have ideas. I mean, I definitely do inject my own ideas into the conversation. But I think, again, it's quite important you don't automatically favor your, your own ideas over everyone else's. I think you've got to remain fairly impartial. Well, also, at this point, it's almost like not even being right or wrong, but it's like, how do we prioritize the ideas about, we, we can't test everything. We can't try everything. What are we going to try this year? What over the next few months are we going to try and invest in to see whether it works or not? And it's almost like that should be a group decision. We should try wherever we can to as a group. So I think as much of you're almost like a moderator, you're trying to kind of make sure that the debate about what we do is is a fruitful debate and it you get to a conclusion i mean i often say i mean i, I didn't come to to create a strategy for new york times i mean what i did do is come and, and say you haven't got a strategy you better come up yeah, with a strategy and let's have together. a process which leads to you coming up mm-hmm. with your strategy and when you brought all these people together and as you said moderated who do you do you have anyone that you can turn to for advice or mentorship or when, when you don't know the answer yeah, and i i mean different Many CEOs don't really feel this, but I I feel we've got a very good board. That the we got a board of independent directors and some family directors, and that the board is genuinely we've got lots of digital people now. Um, great digital marketer from from Facebook. We've got Joe Ito who runs the uh, uh, the MIT Media Lab. We've got Brian McAndrews who ran Pandora for a bit, is the chair of Grubhub at the moment. Aman Bhutani who runs. Uh, who's an engineer turned senior manager who runs Expedia. So we've got really, really sharp digital minds. They're great. And the other thing is the the family. I mean, the great thing about the family is, I mean, you know, I'm kind of a gun for hire, really. I always have been. I mean, in the sense that I'm a you know, professional broadcaster and I sort of slightly unexpectedly become a media executive. And I'm, I'm here as an employee, quite a well-heeled employee, but I'm an employee of the New York Times. I'll leave, you know, with a little carriage clock or something, uh, and that'll be that for me. The family, Adolf Ox Salzberger bought the New York Times in 1895. We're now in 2019. The publisher is 37. He'll probably be, you know, publisher for 20, 25 years, maybe longer. They're here for the long term. They, 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 that family wants this institution to be going in 100 years from now. And the dialogue with the family... In the end, you know, I think of the, the publisher as being, being my boss, certainly a critical partner and influencer. And that dialogue's been very important, sometimes bumpy. I mean, these, these things always are, but basically that's been a real source of strength. And you said they had appetite for change and that's kind yeah. of essentially... And indeed impatience helped. for change. And I think the thing about organisations is 
right now, every leader says they're in favour of change. Every board says change, radical change, that's what we want. Most of them, I think, are lying, probably to themselves, but they're lying. They don't. Actually, they are frightened of change, and in many ways they will try almost unconsciously to stop it happening. This is the reason legacy organizations die. They die because, and it's it's kind of, it's a sort of sad story. It's like the chief executive who talks about, I want innovation, I want fresh ideas, my door's always open, you know, if anyone's got a great idea, of course we'll back it. Actually, I think they either themselves or they let others around them, the CFO who wants a business plan before you can do anything, who won't <laughs> let you hire measures, two yeah. people. It's like, by their actions, they they smother it, even as they're saying they want it. And I think that business, every every morning, look in the mirror, are you really helping change happen? Or have you become a bit sort of, sort of sedentary? Are you yeah. now sort of talking rather grandly about, about the need for do more work, go back, give me another, give me another proposal? And when you think about change, you've talked very openly and said that in a decade, you think that the print version of the paper Probably will a bit be more gone. Than that. I've, I've, I've said at least a decade, yeah, which, is always, least a decade. It, which is always rather brilliantly yeah. quoted then as a decade. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I think it's likely to be at least 15 years. So it's a long, long time. Long after I've left this job, um, we'll still be printing. But no, the idea is that we have multiple platforms. Well, obviously, we've got a smartphone platform. We've got a tablet and desktop platform but also we've got a podcasting platform we're going to have tv we've got live events and so on there's going to be voice in the home you know the assistants and uh, ai is going to play a very big part in our future as well so we're going to have all of these platforms print is one platform it's a it's a wonderful thing but there'll be a day almost uh, almost certainly it may stabilize economically it's more likely i think to go on declining and probably there'll be a day when we turn the presses off the challenge is to to make sure that by the time that day comes, you've done enough to make sure it doesn't matter. And there will still always be an appetite for news. It's just a different place in a different kind of relationship to it, well, the depending appetite on the platform. For new, the appetite for news will end when nothing happens in the world. As I always say, the great thing for us is Western civilization is ending. And there's going to be a lot of news. And it's not... People often say, well, what happens when uh, Donald Trump leaves the White House? Donald Trump's a symptom of, of profound forces you know the the separation of different groups of people polarization inequality globalization automation mass human migration There's, the climate is 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 already beginning to affect things will almost certainly affect things more in decades to come this is a very fraught frightening transition period in human history from a period actually it turns out most of my lifetime of relative stability is giving way to a much more uncertain future plays out in people's lives it's uh, much it's much tougher being a millennial today you know it's very troubling if, if I think about my own children and their children I think when you think about the news business it says news is going to be more important forever and in particular news you can trust kind of news which is truthful which is serious is going to be I think even more at a premium in the, in the future than now so you know I think that and if you go around this building almost from the security guards downstairs up, I think a sense of mission and the importance of all of this is, is clearer than ever. Yeah, and I love the fact that while a lot of newsrooms are decreasing in size and cutting budgets, you're actually increasing the New York Times' newsroom because you know the value of having really strong journalistic practice. 
Well, that's right. And, you know, we talked about, about uh, before this started, about Netflix. Reed Hastings, when I talked to them, those guys are pouring money into content. They're happy to make very substantial losses to have the content they need to build their business in the long term. I feel the same about journalism. Now, we're lucky. We can still make a, a handsome operating profit. We have, a lot of, we have a lot of free cash flow at the end of each year, and we have a very strong balance sheet. So we don't have to go into the red to do it. But I've got exactly the same thought, which is that more journalism, more journalists, more investigations, better international coverage, better business coverage, all of these things help in the end make you more valuable and relevant to users and the more users you get, and particularly the more paying users you get, the better your business model. And that in turn enables you to invest further. On a personal level, uprooting your life from the UK, was that a difficult decision to well, make? It's, I mean, the, the other complication is my, um, I'd, I'd worked for, I guess, about nine months, eight, nine months in New York in the 1980s for the BBC. And those days, rather grand offices in Rockefeller Centre, opposite St. Pat's. Uh, and crucially, it's a kind of non-trivial fact, had met uh, Jane, who's my wife. So I, I, I came over here and, and I was going to say I came back to the UK with, with, with an American wife. That's not quite the way it worked out. We went out for about a year with one of those sort of New York, London, well, rather, rather stretched, well, rather stretched kind of <laughs> <Yeah>. you know, <laughs> relationships. With and it was all. pre, I'm imagining FaceTime and all of the useful. All of that. That's right. Yeah. So even for, and phone calls were expensive, but there were, there were uh, Freddie Laker had a cheap airline. People Express, there, was no, there were a couple of cheap airlines, but it was that was quite a fraught year. But eventually Jane, Jane came to the UK, we got married, and in fact Jane became a British citizen, so she's got both passports. And we have three children who've got both passports, two of whom were already actually at university in, in the US before the times called, or one was there and one was about to go. In fact, our youngest son is now, he's now an undergraduate here as well. So all three children are on the side of the Atlantic. And because of Jane... Quite apart from work, which has been bringing me to the America for the last 25, 30 years, many times a year. Also, holidays in America in the summer, American in-laws and, and friends and relations. So, and, and New York, is, as you know, is not really, it's like London. It sort of sits some ways outside the country in which it's situated. It's, uh, it's a global city and, and I don't think Londoners find New York difficult to get their heads around, nor do New Yorkers find London. And I mean... Uh, suburban America, the America of the South and West in particular, is a much bigger lift, I think, for a Brit. Though I, I'm also pretty portable. I mean, I'm, um, I, I really enjoyed it here, but that's not to say I don't still love London. I think London is in many ways the greatest city on the planet and uh, hope it stays that way. Um, so I don't, I don't prefer life here to life in the UK, but I really enjoy it as well. I now want to just ask you a few more personal and advice-related questions. Firstly, I'm interested, it's often found that people, CEOs or very prominent people have particular daily rituals or habits. Do you have anything that you have to do every day <laughs> to get you ready for what is ever going to be thrown at you? Uh, because I'm um, uh, trying to write a novel at the moment, uh, I would say that most days begin with me getting up very, very, very early. To How early is that? Uh, well... Six o'clock will be a typical yeah. time, sometimes earlier. Pretty early. Uh, 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 do a bit of work on that. I try intermittently to exercise, at least by trying to walk some of the way to work. I, I can get to work incredibly quickly on the subway. I try and walk to work. But other forms of exercise, you know. I love to cook. That's probably that's more at the end of the day than the start, the start of the day. But the other obvious point is 
and I, I, I'm trying to stop myself doing this in the middle of the night. My children, it's rather brilliant. You know, there's a whole moral panic about whether people are completely, you know, a generation's been lost to screens. My children are absolutely convinced I'm the one who's got the problem. I'm, I'm the one who's completely, completely, I've, I've been completely captured by my smartphone. Because like Ariana Huffington's created this whole movement where keep the phone out of the room and because she had a, just a moment where she yeah. realised she had to change. And I have got this spurious excuse that because I'm in the news business, I need to keep on. In front. So I always think, well, it's different for me. I'm a professional. But you're but very aware of it, at least, that while it's so easy to yeah, be connected, it's a bit you weird, need though. to disconnect. I mean, most nights I'm up at two or three in the morning really? for half an hour looking at news. So, so I'm trying to get rid of that. But it does mean the first 10 or 15 minutes are, um, most mornings are actually based on whipping through four or five sources of news. And by the way, they're familiar ones. And when I can, by the way, um, you know, BBC Radio. We live in this astonishing moment where all I have to do in the, in the, as I'm making a cup of tea in the kitchen is say, OK, Google, play BBC Radio 4. And yeah, suddenly, magic, you, know, it's, uh, yeah. it's, you know, it's magic. And yeah. I, I had a latish morning today. So the world at one, eight o'clock. We're going to get quite deep for a, for a Friday morning. <laughs> I want to imagine that you're giving advice to your children. How would you explain to them what it means to craft and then live a life that has purpose and meaning? I think that's quite hard to... That's something which people have to discover them for, for themselves. I'm one of those people who definitely am, in the broader sense, mission-driven. You know, I... I I'm always on a mission. It doesn't mean that the mission is necessarily entirely apparent to me myself. Even now, it's not quite, quite. Sh- I'm not quite clear what what it is that 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 creates that shape. Though I think there is something about about storytelling and about what's really happening, really understanding the world. That kind of sense of investigation and trying to get to the to the bottom of what's really going on is is part of it. And the other thing we haven't talked about is I'm pretty religious. I, I was brought up as a Catholic, and it's kind of unlike so many of my contemporaries and friends it's stuck and that's another straightforward way of kind of almost like streamlining the way you think about things but I think the key thing is there's not one answer to that I mean I would say you know when I think about my friends people who I've known for for decades many of us in different ways are makers we like to kind of make things construct things change things and and leave some kind of mark but one really big difference I think is in some ways, two or three moments was a moment when I got a little letter from the BBC saying I'd been accepted and thought, actually, I'll change my plans and do this instead and give it a go. Uh, and then a few a few months later, that moment of figuring out, actually, I could do this. There was another moment where actually very unexpectedly I got chosen to be controller of BBC Two, which suddenly opened up from journalism, the rest of TV. So there were two, two or three moments like that, which sort of... Which, which made a difference. But other, other than that, it was really just, I think, if you like, making a go of what was a fairly traditional career path. I mean, I, I, I'm, you know, full-time employment, not too many career choices, opportunities essentially offered to me because I was thought to be doing well. And for my children, it's so much tougher. It's so much tougher. And I think this kind of false... Oh, well, you can do anything. It's like the worst bit of advice ever because then you're left wondering if what you're doing is actually the right thing when there's so many other things you could be doing. No, that's that's right. And I think that finding a shape, I, I definitely think that business of, it's like which bits of your natural instincts are, are helpful? What, you know, what are the things that you're attracted to where 
also if you are cold-blooded about it you think well actually actually that was really good that yeah. worked sort of thing i achieved something interesting it kind of made sense maybe it made money i enjoyed it i felt happy and relaxed when i was doing it that business of almost discovering through testing and learning what feels right and not trusting it. I mean, it's weird because people always say follow your instincts well the answer is most of us have got instincts which are partly really strong and helpful and not entirely about everything about jobs about also about, about relationships so there's something about i think a, a kind of open-mindedness and, and testing and learning which i think is true of any 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 career i think the thing which is true though and you, you again you said it earlier is it's a long game it's a long game and sometimes you have to try things to figure out that they're not right for you that's a very valid use of a human life and i think this idea that there is no right or wrong decision there's a decision that you have to make and then it will be the fork in the road that then well, gets right. you to the next part and, and and sometimes you know we, we know that history is littered with people who we now regard as extraordinary successes um particularly in the arts but also in science pe people whose work is now regarded as being you know kind of epoch changing and incredibly important who went to their graves feeling like complete failures so the sense of feeling like a success is not necessarily actually associated with things that matter most and the success yeah. that matters most and i think that uh, not beating yourself up too much yeah is, and, is and extrapolating this idea that you are your work and that is your identity because obviously as human beings we we are just beings we exist beyond the work but we have to work to live um, and I think that's like, a, and again, sometimes that line can be a bit blurred. Yes, I think I think that's very right. Though I think, in a way, the move away from the, as it were, conventional salaried life and the kind of pension um, kind of contribution side of, I mean, you know, the, the fact that so many people don't really have that experientially, not not consistently, I think is quite a good thing. Um, so that you don't get the sense of being defined not just by work in general, but by defined by a job. And like by your kind of economic value and productivity. Yeah, and, and the economics of are I think it's, there's, there's like two worlds. There's a, there's a world where, which most human beings are in, where they have to really, really worry about economics. Really worry about e economics. There is a sort of a wonderful moment, which I've, I've arrived at, where actually... I don't have to work. I probably, I think we'll probably do something, you know, for many years to come. I'm 61. Um, I bet I'll, I'll be working one way or another, but it may not be full time, but I, may, I, I bet I'll be working for many more years. But I didn't have to work. And that's a very, that, what a privilege. I mean, what an incredible luxury. And which is, this is in a sense one of the true inequalities. I think the biggest single inequality of all, I grew up in a, in a household where my parents loved me, my parents always wanted the best for me they read to me i grew up with mm. books that sense of how lucky to have that yeah. as and so much more important than how much money they had see the last question which you've kind of really tied in nicely to what you were saying earlier is what do you want to do when you grow up you, you said you're writing a novel well, well the, no, the, getting back to the you know some people when they think about creative writing you know it, the blank page is a bit daunting so they go off and buy you know, stationary, or they, you know, go for a long walk, yeah. hoping that, you know... It will just that, that arrive exactly, in their head. <laughs> exactly, inspiration will arrive. Yeah. And I've, I've, I've used a kind of like a 40-year media career to... To, <laughs> <laughs> to procrastinate. <laughs> so 
I, no, I, I wrote a, a, a non-fiction book a few years ago, and and, and I, I, I like that. I, th- I found it hard and harder work than I thought. Um, I'm quite blasé. I always go into things thinking, you know, couldn't be that difficult. Actually, it turns out quite difficult. Uh, um, so I'm, 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 I, I'd like to do that. Definitely like to do that. Um, weirdly, although I've done an awful lot of traveling, I've not done much kind of relaxed traveling where, you know, you can kind of get a sense of a country, meet people for anything other than sort of, you know, you know, interviewing people in their hospital yeah, beds yeah. or sort of you know, interviewing the head of state. It's like, like, And so I think the idea of getting to know the world in a more relaxed way and getting to know actually, you know, both, I would say both the UK, there's many corners I don't know, there's much of, I don't really know Scandinavia, there's much of the world even quite near to hand, much of the United States I don't know well. So that would so probably fuel your creativity. Yeah, that that's right. And, and, um, and, and also just to sort of, honestly, although I've really loved it, the clutter, the clutter of this digital moment. I mean, you know, not having to give another speech about digital transformation. And not having to be looking at your phone at two in, two in the exactly. morning. <laughs> All of that wouldn't go amiss as well. Yeah, that sounds great. Maybe it's a gap yeah. year that you need to do after <laughs> exactly. your stint in the New York 40, Times. I'm coming up this September the 40 years of continuous wow. employment. 40 that is years. so impressive. Yeah, well, I think I, you've, I, earned, you've earned a gap year. Or something. Uh, uh, it's, I, I mean, I think it's a thing. I don't know. Is that recommendable? I mean, I know to someone who's scrabbling around for a job, this thing could sound like, well, of course, who yeah. wouldn't want that? There's a, there's a grind to that. There's a 40 years, 40 years, not one day, I think. I mean, I've had breaks of like gardening leave, but there hasn't been a day of, of, of without employment or anything more than a few weeks in, in four, four decades. So. Well, I look this forward to hopefully seeing spared. some travels. I'm not the there future. yet. I may sort of yeah. keel, keel over before then. But well, we'll thank you so much for your time and pleasure. for sharing all your thoughts. It was really great to hear. Okay. And yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.